0: We are Encountering Silence.
1: Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you.
2: Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world.
0: This is the second part of a two-part episode. To hear part one, listen to last week's episode, and then come back for this one.
1: So I'm thinking, too, about, you just said the sensate, and it seems to me that nature, I've listened to some things that you've said in the past, and I've read your work. Nature really plays a part for you. That you, you even said in your answer that the poetry and the nature and the place you're around allows for the space of your mind to kind of open up. And I'm kind mm-hmm. of curious as to if you could speak a little bit about how nature has been a companion for you that allows either a ritual or allows for the poetic to come forth for you.
3: Well, nature for me is very congenial. Uh, I, I'm sitting here at my desk, but I'm looking out the window and I can see the horizon the wooded horizon with Rowan's knob up on, just poking over the horizon there. And uh, the ginkgo tree, which uh, got blasted by a a hard frost last week. Uh, The leaves have all turned brown. All the ginkgo trees in the neighborhood have turned brown. The little tiny leaves have just been blasted and there's been a lot of damage that went down to 24 degrees one morning. It's kind of sad because uh, it'll get started again. Um, They'll drop those leaves and then put out fewer leaves, but the leaves will be larger. I've seen this happen before. So there's kind of life going on out there. Just watching the, the change of the uh, woods at, at a certain point when the leaves are coming out, it all it looks very lacy. And there's an amazing variety of greens. Uh, and, you know, lemon green, and lime green, and sort of rusty green. And and then, of course, the evergreens are just that deep color. And uh, that's s- still developing. But eventually, it'll all smooth out to one what I call Sherwood green, just a uniform green, the whole woods. So I mean, this is. Uh, uh, it's part of life going on around me and um it's you know if you try to make it a too too direct co- connection uh it can be artificial um i would say the, le- the the birds to me are my teachers and uh they they always seem to be exhilarated uh nothing seems to no matter how bad the the world is, is they they're singing that same <laughs> that same tune, and uh, it picks up the heart. There's there's something larger than ourselves and our, our concerns. So I don't know if I answered your question or not.
1: No, I, I you know, I, I was just kind of, it was an open-ended question, because I do know that uh, in the past you've talked about even, let well, me double-check to make sure it's you and it's not somebody else, but I'm pretty sure it's you that you've said stuff about how you've slept outside. and.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, it's, that's another way of immersing myself in, in nature. And uh, I have a, a roof over my head. It's a, a long building with a long porch and a concrete slab and no screening or anything. Uh, so the birds fly in and out uh, as they w- want. And of course the mosquitoes, but I put on some uh, skin so stuff that keeps them away. I've been doing that for 25 years now, or more. Uh, It's lost some of its romance, uh, but it still is rewarding. And it's still something that sort of keeps me grounded. Uh, And uh, especially this time of the year, I walk out there through the grass barefooted. That's another way of staying grounded. And come back in the morning barefooted. And, uh, you know, people might think I'm an an ascetic. I'm a sensualist. Actually, I'm a sensualist. (laughs) And and everybody should have that experience, walking through the dewy grass in their bare feet. Of course, the the neighbors will think you're strange, but let them think what they will.
0: Brother Paul, in your book, Unquiet Vigil, you have a poem titled, My Silence is the Lord. And it opens, My Silence is the Lord. I listen, his silence speaks at all times. When I listen not, my hearing, it's filled with words and my tongue takes to rambling. So what I wanna ask is just that, you know, that tension of, of God being silence. And, you know, many of us face situations where God does feel completely silent in terms of being an absent and empty. And I wonder, how can we find the fullness of God in this great silence that you speak of?
3: Well, that might be a mistake to seek the fullness of God. Because God, to our perception, is more like nothing and like nothingness and emptiness. You have to allow God to manifest the way God will. Uh, sometimes it's consoling, sometimes it's, uh, you know, you feel like a, a presence. You feel like, I'm not, I really am not alone. As St. Bernard says, I'm never less alone than when I am alone. But on, on the other hand, sometimes uh, you just have to prepare yourself, be conditioned to the re- reality that God some does not speak sometimes. And uh, lately, it seems for me, uh, it's it's become more like that. So, um, I've started memorizing Psalms, since I don't seem to quite know how to cope with that uh, that absence or that that emptiness. I I cope with it by you know using my my memory and and uh, you know I. I praise the Lord at all times. His praise always on my lips. Uh, that that That's Psalm 33, I think it is, in our numbering system. Uh, things like that will, uh, buy, it sort of uh, helps me get, get by.
2: Well, I was going to ask you how the pandemic is shaping your life as a poet, and then you made the comment about being a little dry lately. Do you think there's any correlation there or any insights you might offer about the poetry of the pandemic? If not for you personally, then maybe on a larger scale?
3: Well, I don't know if that's the case or not. Uh, If I did know, that would be a consolation. But part of the the dryness is not to know. (laughs) Uh, I think a lot of people are feeling uh, very dejected. They're feeling kind of like at a loss, and maybe what the Lord wants me to do is to feel at a loss along with him. Uh, i I trust that what's happening in you know my my periods of meditation th- that it's not my doing, that the Lord is doing something and and, uh, and I don't always see what's going on. so I just I just bow to that, and if nothing goes on, well, then nothing goes on. It's, it is what it is. But if I if I you know if I don't let it be what it is and try to make it into something, then I I compromise it. Maybe I'm compromising by trying to memorize psalms in the, in that process. Um, maybe that's just part of my weakness. Uh, but um, it won't last, you know. If things change; they're always changing.
1: I think that answer is so profoundly helpful for me because uh, it connected in my mind what you said at the beginning about how silence is not just my silence mm-hmm. is kind of what i got from you you said you, you were talking about prayer is not my prayer and silence is not just my silence i i started yeah. to think about myself so as you said maybe for those of us who are feeling very dejected or dry like like you are maybe this is we are collectively experiencing together you know mm. this isn't just mine i'm feeling what the world is feeling and what my brothers and sisters are feeling uh, and i'm connected to that whether i'm aware or not and precisely and and so you you made that connection for me that i didn't make and your wisdom of saying well you know i have certain weaknesses and i have to be strong enough to kind of this will change and I can't force it be what it isn't. So let's just mm-hmm. let's just ride this wave and see where we go. Kind of thing. I yeah. uh, I I appreciate that very much and I just wanted to thank you for that answer. It's it's kind of helpful for me. Your dryness is bearing fruit.
3: <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. You know, Julian of Norwich, you know, says that In meditation or in prayer, what you have to do is um, hope, trust, and endure. And that's all we can do. And if it doesn't open up into an, an illumination of any kind, that doesn't really matter. The Lord is just as pleased with the experience you have as simply trusting and enduring as he is with when you open up in an an enlightenment.
2: There's something deliciously subversive about all of this. Because we live in a culture that is so, I think Eugene Peterson described it as a self-bound society. We live in a self bound society. And maybe that means narcissistic. Maybe that just means anxious, you know, kind of an angsty level of self consciousness. I mean, there's a number of ways you can kind of approach that. But part of what I love about monastic spirituality, and, and I'm, a, I'm a lay associate of Conyers. You may not be aware of that. But oh. um, so, you know, so I've been hanging out with you guys for a while. But part of what has really nourished me, you know, as a person who lives a secular life by Benedictine Cistercian monastic spirituality has been this, this notion that your prayer is never only yours, mm-hmm. that, that there is always something communal about it. And, you know, and I think you so beautifully articulated that when you said, I'm feeling dejected, well, maybe God's calling me into solidarity with all the people who are feeling dejected. And there's, there's maybe just a little bit of Buddhist non attachment in there as well.
3: Oh, definitely.
2: Yeah, you know, so so thank you again, like Kevin, I'm just saying thank you. But I do think there's something there that maybe our culture at large might want to pay a little bit more attention to. And Mm -hmm. it might liberate us from our addiction to results and i think that that often gets in the way of our prayer as well
3: mm-hmm.
0: this conversation on encountering silence will continue after a 30 second break of silence take a moment and breathe with us
3: yeah results the effect well that's not important you know you, you you do prayer without looking for the fruits of prayer so whether my prayer has any uh, benefit for the world i don't know uh, you know people tell me it does i mean it's kind of like the, the taken for for granted uh, but i don't feel it th- to be the case and except now and then something just happens comes along and the one, one of the most ordinary things that happens is that you know I'll pray for somebody, I'll think of them and pray for them. Well, next thing I know, I, I get a letter from them, or I get a phone call from them. I mean, I was just thinking of them. I hadn't thought about them in a, in years, maybe, and uh, then all of a sudden they just kind of pop onto the stage. And I, I guess we exist in a, a vast common mind. <laughs> there's communication in the med- mental sphere that well we don't see it directly but uh, it manifests itself in these ways
0: brother paul this your playfulness your softness your open-handed gentleness with life and this and this world is just really really amazing your ability to approach things without control and domination and to just really embrace the moment for precisely what it is, is something, you know, we spend our lifetimes trying to cultivate. And would you say that the monastic life is a a big part of what contributed to getting you to that place of, of softening over and over and over again? Or would you say that it's your temperament or a combination?
3: Well, I think it's a combination. Somebody asked me about that the other day, and uh, I I didn't give a very good answer. But the, the answer that I, that came to me later on was that I had a twin sister. And if you have a twin sister, you learn how to be gentle. And so I, I have, have that to start with. And then, of course, entering into this uh, all-male environment, you know, to be competitive to me seemed to be the, the way to go. And uh, I had to have some of that uh, sort of, I wouldn't say they knocked it out of me, but uh, remember Dom James was, would say things like, well, don't say don't say things that would offend people." And I used to like to stand up at the back of the class and challenge what the teacher was saying. And I had a philosophy teacher, Dan Walsh, and uh, I was forever you know challenging him. And he just took it so coolly. And it's like they did not enter into the kind of com- competition that I was uh, thirsting for. They, you know, they, they were too self-assured. They knew what they were talking about. And it was good for me to be exposed to, to mature men like that who, um, you know, aren't, aren't into this. So I've got, uh, I guess I've acquired some s- something from these, these great people who I've I've lived with here in the monastery
0: what would be a story that you would like to share about thomas merton that perhaps we haven't heard before or one that might be something that you learned from him or something that was a funny encounter
3: hmm. i just thought of something the other day and now i can't remember what it was <laughs> uh. <laughs> Well, talking about gentleness, I remember one time he was there was this black cat, and I looked out the window and he was just giving a, a really a good petting. This black cat, it's just mm. around the monastery for a, a week or two. What was the other thing I thought of? You're looking for a story I've never told before. Exclusive. And, and I, I regret that I haven't had a chance to tell the story, and here I am. It it slipped my mind already. Well, maybe he's working on me, doesn't want me to tell these kinds of stories.
2: (laughs) Maybe to give Brother Paul's mind a minute or two, is it okay if I tell a story or two that this comes... I I never knew Merton, um, only through his books, but about... Five or six years ago now, I think it was six years before my daughter died, I spoke at a Methodist church in Louisville. You know, I was there for the weekend. And, of course, being Louisville, there were people there who had had contact, obviously, with the brothers and with, with uh, Merton. And I was at lunch, I think, on the Saturday of this day that I was leading this, this retreat for this church, and two people were there at the table, and I think they were brought over to meet me because I was the lay Cistercian and talking about you know monastic spirituality and so forth. And so the one man, it was a man and a woman, and the man had been a student at Bellarmine in the 1960s, and he worked in the library. And so apparently he got to know Merton because of his role as the librarian there. And the story he had to tell was when the Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band came out. And apparently the day the album came out, Merton called the library and he said, I want to hear this album. Mm-hmm. And this young man took the call and he said, well, I'm sorry, father. We don't have the album in our collection. And Merton was like, I really want to hear this album. And, so, and this fellow was he was an undergraduate. So he was what, 18 or 19 years old. And he said, well, I have a copy. And Merton said, could I borrow it? So he arranged to get his copy of Sgt. Pepper's to the monastery so Merton could hear it. And I said, do you still have that album? You know, the album that Thomas Merton heard. And I think he said, oh, that was years ago. Now I have a CD version or something like that. But, but it was just a wonderful story of Merton's intellectual curiosity and his love of culture. Yeah. The wo- The woman who was also at this table She had been, I guess, in high school about the same time. So she was a few years younger than this, this fellow who had been that the librarian, but her best friend, and I wish I could remember the names, but this was years ago, but her best friend was the daughter of somebody, I guess, who was a good friend of the monks. And they were, the two girls were in high school French together and they were kind of struggling with their French. And so the father of the one girl mentioned this to Merton, who we all know spoke French. And so Merton said, well, I could help them with their homework. So apparently the girls would give their homework to the father. The father would take it to the cloister and Merton would just do it for them. And, and, they, <laughs> and they would pick it up, I guess, Sunday night and have to rewrite it in their own hand. <laughs> And turn it in. So, So Merton had a side side business, you know, selling, you know, plagiarized French homework. I don't think he made any money. You know, he did it for love. (laughs) So, those are my two Merton stories, such as they are. God, what a character!
0: Brother Paul, you've also had a close relationship with with many others um, there, and I know some of the poems that you've written about monks who have died have been incredibly touching. There was a few actually that I I had cried through. I know one was- the Matthew, um,
3: Matthew Kelty.
0: Yeah. Was that in amounting to nothing?
3: Yes, there was one or two in in there. Might've been three.
0: Yeah, there's a a poem called, Last Conversation with Matthew. Oh, yes. I think there was that one and, and there was another one in here that was incredibly striking. I don't think I have a question with that. I just, (laughs) thank you for your poetry. It's really just beautiful. And the Mm -hmm. way it, it also shares monastic life is really, really beautiful to read.
1: Yeah. I know you said you were hitting a dry spell, but do you have one that you had written, you know, five or six months ago that when you were still writing that or that you were playing around with
3: that you could share? Yeah, there's one that called Moonlit Reveries. The full blurry moon won't find rest in the sharp tings of that barren tree. While moon is sinking, it's hard to settle into calm inner inner repose. Tall monk strides by with strokes and fluff of habit. He paid moon no heed. Moon gets me concerned Monks buried without coffins, do they sink and sink? No, they are further down than that, down to the core, the core of all things. In the thickening clouds, moon has lost its form, then hides. Now, soul, turn inward, in what's unseen, Sink in mystery intimate, he stayed at the core.
0: We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com.
1: I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm
2: Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com.
0: Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There, you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world.